Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. Before we begin, a warning. This episode contains descriptions of domestic violence. Please listen with care. I don't think that revenge is a book which posits anger as a bad thing. Anger is a kind of truth-telling in revenge, and in some ways it can be quite cleansing and clarifying of the fact that our hero or anti-hero of the book is someone who has no real restrictions certainly on their expression of anger. They are not ashamed of feeling angry. Hi, I'm Zoya Patel. I'm a writer and editor. And welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. My guest today is writer S.L. Lim, and together we're discussing their award-winning novel, Revenge. The protagonist in Revenge is called Yanni, and the novel starts in her family home in Malaysia. The novel is told through Yanni's perspective, and in some ways, Yanni is an unlikely protagonist. She's smart and witty, But according to her family, she's defined by what she is not. She's not married. She's not a parent. She's not university educated. And she's queer. On the other hand, her brother, Shan, has ticked a lot of boxes in his life. He has a wife. He has a daughter. He's Oxford educated. And he migrates with his family to Australia for a better life. Revenge is about how Yanni and Shan's paths unfurl and diverge from childhood because of the different opportunities and resources that were first given to them from their parents. Perhaps unsurprisingly, that difference leads to a build-up of rage and resentment for Yanni and a slow-burning desire for her revenge on her brother. I wanted to talk to SL on Book It In because after reading Revenge, I found Yanni haunting my thoughts. There's a universality to her experience that captured my imagination, because while her plight might be common, her reaction to it certainly isn't. I wanted to understand Yanni and what she represents when it comes to inequality, disadvantage, and intersectionality. So the protagonist in Revenge is Yanni, who we follow from childhood to middle age. And she's queer, she's unmarried, and she doesn't have children. Why did you want to centre a woman with those experiences? You know, the way it starts off for me when I'm writing something is that I tend to start off with one big feeling and one big idea. And in this particular case, the big feeling was rage, essentially, which is appropriate to a novel titled Revenge. And there was a little bit of a process of working backwards around that and of finding the sorts of circumstances which would give substance to that rage. And so what I came up with was this character who has a huge capacity for desire and a refusal to scale that desire 
to the circumstances she finds herself in. So Yanni is someone who wants everything. She wants love and pleasure and experience and art. And some of the positions that she finds herself in because she's queer, because she is unmarried, because she's living on one side of a border in, you know, a poor country, she is unable to enact that desire. And so I guess, yeah, so I I chose a person who faces constraints but refuses to shrink themselves in response to those constraints. So at the start of the book, Yanni is 11 and her brother Shan is 14. And in the opening scene, Shan has just beaten Yanni and he's left the scene. And when Yanni tells her mother about her brother's behaviour, her mother says this a few times in the novel, just be sensible, you know how he is. Tell me about Shan's anger when he's younger. Yeah, so Shan is seen through Yanni's eyes and so we don't get a direct sort of interior access to what he's feeling or experiencing. But what we do observe is these sorts of explosions of violence which are very much about asserting power over his younger sister. And we also see we have these hints that while Shan has been set up to be, you know, he's the son and he is ostensibly, you know, in a position of superiority to his younger sister, it's also kind of clear that people know that she's smarter than him, to put it bluntly. And so we have these expectations which are being placed on Shan as to what he should be. And he has this constant reminder that maybe he's not. And that, you know, can be inferred to cause a lot of distress for him. Yanni's mother is also violent to her and in a more methodical way that's kind of emotional and physical. Yet Yanni reacts to her violence really differently to how she responds to Shan's. She seeks revenge on her brother, but she comes to peace with her mother as she ages. I want to know what the driver is of Yanni's mother's violence. That is actually a really brilliant question, and it's something which was not quite visible to me while I was writing Revenge. And in fact, it wasn't actually visible to me um, until a couple of months ago. Because in a sense, in the novel, Yanni's mother's violence and sadism and you know manipulative sadism really appears as something which does not have an origin or a psychological explanation. And I think that that's often, that's very true to how a child experiences their parents' violence because, you know, your parents set the parameters of your understanding of the world and so they exist to you as a fact and you don't really see the context in which those facts come to be created. You know, there's a huge absence in this novel, I would say, and that absence is, you know, we, we, we see the sorts of, difference in structural position between people in Malaysia at a point of time and in Australia in a point of time and we see that one set of people is much wealthier and has a much greater scope of opportunity than the other but the thing we don't see is the flow of resources I guess extracted via colonial violence which is a transfer of wealth from one country to another. And I'm not saying that, you know, Yanni's mother or this character necessarily would be someone who is aware of this in explicit terms or who is thinking about it in explicit terms. But I do think that when you live in a society where there is extraordinary violence going on and there is no forum or no mechanism for that violence to be identified and named and 
resisted in an explicit way, you know, that has a psychological effect. And I would posit that as a potential explanation for how Yanni's mother is power, you know, is punishing people who are not responsible for that, that, you know, she feels powerless in her own life and she enacts that against people over whom she has power. Yeah, and that rage is inherited by Yanni in a way as she kind of moves into that next generation and watches her brother be exported to Australia with all of his knowledge, Um, I guess like one of those resources that's being drained and being set up for this much easier life in in a wealthier country. It links quite closely also to the way that Yanni's father is positioned. So he is both Yanni's hero and her jailer in a way. He's so proud of her intellect, but then he squashes her dreams by not paying for her to go to university um, and making her work in the family shop instead. Yanni at one point wonders what her father's life would have been like under different circumstances, and I was really interested in that. How does this reflection on her father's lived experience change the way that Yanni feels about her own circumstances? I think that there can be this this sense of guilt or this sense of normalisation. Other people have suffered and in particular people who you love or who are close to you have suffered. And that can act as a legitimization of your own circumstances and a reason for you to accept, you know, accept suffering yourself. And so the sorts of sacrifices or the sorts of loss of potential which she sees her very loved father having experienced is something which gets incorporated into Yanni's sense of what she deserves for herself and perhaps explains why she accepts such such a constricted life for the first two decades of her life in the novel. Yeah, it feels almost like she reconciles herself in that moment because she can see that same kind of resignation reflected in her parents. But there is one area that I feel like she never really gives up and that's in her desire for her childhood friend Xu Ying. So the book is about loss in so many ways, but that thread of longing and desire is also really strong throughout it. Can you tell me a bit about Yanni's relationship with Xu Ying? It's both a real relationship and it's not. You know, they do have sexual and romantic encounters and that is real. You know, I mean, it's real in the sense that it happens and there's desire there. But there's also this scene which I included quite deliberately early where Yanni is watching with this kind of yearning and eroticized admiration of Xu Ying, you know, doing the high jump and seeing this moment where she's suspended out of gravity for a second. And that was actually a slightly deliberate reference to, there's this bit in, I think, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf, where I think there's the character of, there's another image of the character of Prue, this sort of young, beautiful girl who is, I think, leaping to catch a ball and there's that sense of freedom. Then we jump forward in time and Prue has lived a very conventional life and gets married and then ultimately has her life cut short. And so in a lot of ways, Xu Ying stands in for the idea of freedom and the idea of moving outside of those constraints, which ultimately do shape Yanni's existence. And yet the two of them respond to their longing for each other in really different ways, not necessarily the way that we might expect. How and why do their paths diverge in that sense? Well, you could say it. You can say it in different ways, I guess. You could say that Yanni's a little bit braver than Xu Ying, or at least a little bit more honest, and that she's willing to say, you know, if I can't have the thing that I want, I will not pretend that the thing that I have was always the thing that I wanted. Whereas Xu Ying, you know, performs the role which is required of her as a wife and as a mother, and so on, and accesses 
resources on that basis. But yeah, I mean, going back to that idea of oriented towards life, you could say that Xu Ying is just a lot more sensible than Yanni and is, you know, is quite canny and quite strategic in being able to simply acclimatize herself to the fact that sometimes you don't get what you want and you make the best of what you have. Yanni has an interesting way of approaching love, even for her family, though. There's a point in the book where she says she loved her brother once and the feeling was there, but she does nothing to exercise it. And I really love the way you put this. Like everything else, loving a person is just a bit and habits can be broken. How does Yanni's love for her family weave throughout the novel? Yeah, so I guess her love for her family, it starts off as a fact, you know, and and children, they're placed in a particular context where, you know, the, the, the possibility of not loving your family, you know, is not something which is really considered for a child and it's not something which is offered to most people as a child. And so for most of the novel, her love for a family exists as a fact and as a set of choices in terms of her sacrificing certain possibilities that she might otherwise have wished to pursue. And because of this, I don't think, even from an early age within the novel, there's not really a point where that love is either experienced or exercised without a sense of resentment. You know, it's not, it's not freely chosen or freely given. Mm. And that resentment is what ultimately drives us into the next part of Yanni's journey. So the book is set in Malaysia and then Yanni moves to Sydney where Shan is living and later back to Malaysia. But in all of the settings, there's one common feature and that's systemic intersectional disadvantage. So we see characters suffering from uh, like a lack of financial resources, education, gender inequality, homophobia, why did you want to show all of those inequalities mixed in together? In some ways I actually, you know, and this isn't a finished thought, but I've been moving away from using the framing of intersectionality as, as a way of understanding disadvantages people face. And I think because, I mean, that very framing of disadvantage seems to posit a sort of externally existing structure or ordering and compounding factors can move you up or down in this in this ranking or hierarchy or whatever. What I'm much more interested in now is the sort of flow of resources. You know, disadvantage isn't just something which exists, it's something which is extracted. Something is extracted from someone to someone else or from one place to another. I think another reason why I react a little bit against this framing of intersectionality is that seeing sort of disadvantages as additive as opposed to qualitative. You know, it can tend towards this sort of oppression, oppression Olympics type of framing. And, and so, yeah, I guess this is a long-winded way of saying that I am interested in power. Even with all of the complexity of these factors that you unpack in the novel, gender inequality is still the lens that felt the most overt in my reading of the book. And I've seen that reflected in quite a lot of the reviews as well. Why do you think that is? Honestly, I think that is, and this is going to sound really crude, but um, we are absolutely infested with white feminists and white feminism, and gender is the lens through which they approach the world because it is the lens of their own disadvantage, I suppose, and because the publishing industry is full of white women who don't really have problems. Um, 
So <laughs> is that a bit flippant? But I think, yeah, genuinely, I think, and I, I am, I am sort of, I'm responding against that a little bit. And I'm not saying that this is not a valid way to approach the book. And I think that once a book, um, you know, once you've written especially a work of fiction and it goes out into the world and people read it, it doesn't quite belong to you. And so if people get anything from it, you know, I'm happy. I don't want to like condescend to anyone's reading, but I've actually found it quite, in some ways untethered to the content of the novel, that there is this focus on gender inequality, both in terms of that framing of inequality, you know, and also in terms of the framing of gender. You know, Yanni is is clearly in many ways constrained and oppressed, but much of that oppression is enacted by, as you've mentioned, you know, the abusive mother um, whose power arises from performing the sort of role which is allocated within the family to her. And so by doing gender right, essentially, by doing family right, Yanni's mother acquires this power over the people around her. I didn't actually see the figure of the woman as the primary lens through which the book is analysed. So I would say that the lens of gender has come to the forefront because, you know, this exists in a publishing industry and in an economy of prizes, and I have won prizes, and I'm very happy to have them because I get money and I use that to do things. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not knocking it at all, but this is not really the lens with which I approach it. What has that been like for you in the cycle of, you know, having the book out and having that rating come up again and again? Do you know what? It's fine. I love winning things and I love getting money. I love it. You've learned, you've hacked the system because you have mentioned a couple of times, you know, that sensation of once you write a work and it goes out into the world, the interpretation that people have is ultimately up to them as readers. Um, but it would be, it would be very interesting um, writing such a complex series of characters that really show that, you know, that diversity in the way that a lived experience can be shaped by resources and by circumstances um, and to have it kind of reduced to that more simple rating at times. But yes, absolutely take the money and laugh all the way to the bank. I think that's the appropriate <laughs> response. Um, you also said previously in an interview that you want to push back against the idea that racialized persons exist in a uniquely cultural way. And I'm really interested in your thoughts on how the expectations on Yanni to not go to university and to prioritise her parents' desires aren't cultural. Can you tell me more about that? Oh, they absolutely are cultural. Everything is cultural. I mean, absolutely everything we do because we are people and, and our, our actions exist within a culture and are shaped by our upbringing within a culture. Everything we do is cultural. So the kinds of oppression and the kinds of bullshit that Yanni faces, it is, you know, it is cultural in the sense that it exists you know and of course it takes a form you know the kinds of family violence exists in all societies but the form that it takes in a yellow asian family in malaysia is going to be different from a form it takes in you know a white family in australia i guess what i'm pushing back against is the idea that the default is you know this kind of middle class white family in australia and that everything else is a deviation from that and I think that links back to what we were saying before about that framing of, of advantage or disadvantage, because that, I mean, I, I guess that, 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 that makes sense, you know, in looking at the relativity between different groups of people. But I think it is often posited with this implicit assumption that there is 
a control group, if you like, which is the ideal, which is aspired to, you know, the group which does not have race and does not have class and so on. And of course, that that's that's fairly trivially silly, I would say. I, mean, I was trying to write truthfully about about people who exist in the world, and there are no people without culture, and so you can't do that without, you know, expressing certain behaviors or whatever, which are cultural, but I was not trying to exoticize or to orient towards an audience which would see Asian people as deviant. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I guess moving into those kind of bigger picture ideas that you unpack, colonialism and Western imperialism also really do influence Yanni's life. And we've talked about this a little bit, but even as a child, when she has this promising future, her school teacher says to her that her only hope of success is to get out of Malaysia and, you know, presumably head to a Western country like Australia, where her brother eventually ends up. And I feel like we often see migrant stories from the perspective of the migrant, not those that they quote unquote leave behind. So why did you want to show that perspective and that resentment? This is really, that's a really brilliant question. And it's something which my attitude towards, you know, in this book has changed over time. You know, you write a book and of course you're very ambitious for it at the time that you're writing it and you think that you're going to roll of your, all of your experience past and future and all of your understanding past and future into a ball and synthesize it into this, you know, absolutely transcendent moment. And then, of course, life goes on and it turns out what you did was you caught a moment of your understanding and that moment is superseded or expanded by others. And so I would say that when I wrote it, I was, it, it was a bit of a personal counterfactual because I was absolutely brought up, you know, with this idea both within my family and, and expressed outside that your access to wealth, you know, as a person living in Australia, that the access to the spectrum of possibility which comes to me there, that in a sense, you know, you've been saved and you've given, been given an opportunity to have a life, you know, of self-actualization and et cetera, which you would not have had if you had not been able to migrate. And this is something which, you know, it, it has an element of truth in it, given the sort of differential in wealth. And it's something which is very much deployed um, by, I think, older generations. You know, there's that, there's that sort of, you know, when we were young, we lived in a shoe kind of, kind of thing. Um, you don't know how good you have it. And I think that it's also deployed by the Australian state and that society in all its forms to tell you that you should be lucky and grateful and so on. And so what I was doing was creating this personal counterfactual of what if these freedoms had not been, you know, available and the kinds of rage and the kinds of rage in response to constraint which might exist if 
I wasn't able to live the kind of life that I've had. And since then, I've become actually very, very skeptical of this framing. And one aspect that I would say that I've been thinking about, particularly in artistic and cultural circles of, you know, Asian people in the West is that, you know, by definition, if you got here, if you were able to migrate, there was a level of wealth, there was a level of orientation towards the West in terms of, say, speaking English or having and seeking a particular kind of education. Certainly, you know, there was there was there were anti-colonial struggles in Malaysia and in other parts of Southeast Asia. But the people who participated in those struggles and those children of those people were not the ones who were permitted to migrate. And so I'm quite suspicious of the sort of framing of what diaspora means, which is created by artistic and literary circles of Asian people in the West, which does not acknowledge that, you know, as a group, we come from a particular positionality. But when people say things like, you know, amplify migrant voices or look at our lived experience in our brown or our yellow bodies and so on, I mean, that's true to an extent, but it leaves quite a lot out, which I am still unpacking. I feel like we've talked today about various sources of resentment and anger that build in Yanni, but what's the actual catalyst for Yanni wanting to seek revenge on her brother Shan? So just to give a spoiler alert here, Airhorn, the catalyst is that she gets an excuse, right? And she gets an excuse to kill him essentially because you know he, he is enacting imminent violence against her. And we do see that in our society that violence which is ongoing and normalised is not something to which a response is regarded as legitimate, whereas if it's, yeah, that, 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 that sort of imminent self-defence. I mean, there's all kinds of things which I think we have a, there's a very strong moral argument against it that we might be able to defend ourselves, but imminent personal defence is treated as a different category, whether legally or socially. And so I actually did a bit of, you know, not sure if this is the right word, but a bit of deus ex machina to put her in a position where she has that excuse. And that is a little bit unsatisfying to me now. I think that if I got a do-over, I would let her, you know, absolutely um, just kill him because she felt like it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But even in the lead up to that final confrontation, Yanni explicitly comes to Australia with this desire to finally exact her revenge. And she might not know exactly what that looks like. Yeah. But but it's built out of this like long boiling, simmering sense of injustice because she's been denied so much. Why does she seek revenge against Shan for that and not her parents or, or some other source? That is a brilliant question, which probably has quite a simple psychological answer. <laughs> um, I think, you know, in some senses, her brother is, is a really obnoxious guy. But in some senses, the function that he performs in this novel is as a bit of a scapegoat. He did some pretty shitty stuff. But, you know, you could say that his behaviour is suddenly less sadistic than her mother's, for instance. You know, Yanni still loves her parents. And you see that in her behaviour, particularly in the prologue to the novel. So the love that Yanni's parents and the violence that Yanni's parents deliver, they deliver this mix. And so it is difficult to enact violence or revenge against them without also renouncing that experience of love, 
whereas all that her brother ever really does is be an asshole. And so maybe it's maybe it's easier to make him the stand-in for other kinds of oppression. And Yanni is quite principled in that way. So how would you describe what we know of Yanni's ethics of revenge and rage? Do you think she has an ethical approach to it? Yeah, I think she does. And in a way, she's quite forgiving. You know, Yanni does not require much in order to find value or in order to find a reason to forgive someone. You know, her father, her mother, for all the bad things they do, they did give her a kind of love and they did also support her however imperfectly they supported her in a material sense and so it's only once it's only once someone has transgressed every possible boundary and contributed nothing essentially that she feels herself to be justified in crossing that barrier the characters across revenge do express anger in very different ways what did you want the reader to take from that I don't think that revenge is a book which posits anger as a bad thing. Um, And in some ways it can be quite cleansing and clarifying of the fact that our hero or anti-hero of the book is someone who has no real restrictions certainly on their expression of anger. It's in their interior expression of anger. They are not ashamed of feeling angry. They have constraints in how they enact it, but they they don't have shame about feeling it. But I also don't think that I depicted anger as something which no matter how righteous it is, it doesn't clear away the sorts of circumstantial barriers which exist and which are, you know, maybe the source of that anger in a way. So anger is a kind of truth-telling in revenge. I think that Yanni's anger is an absolutely reasonable observational response to the world she observes around her. And anger is also a mechanism of action, as you see with the killing of the brother. But it's not a transcendent force which removes the existence of of things that exist, basically. Do you think it reflects your view of revenge in real life? Is true revenge ever really possible? What would true revenge mean? I guess vindication. You kind of get this idea that as much as Yanni's striving to to get something back, you know, from everything that she's lost. At the end, she's not necessarily vindicated. You know, her life is still a little bit lonely and a little bit boring, though she has discovered um, teen pop music, which is exciting. Um, Yes. (laughs) So I guess I'm curious about what you see as the aftermath of revenge and and if there's an application of that in in the real world. What Yanni is doing or what the novel is doing in some sense is that by spectacularizing and personalizing the moment of violence through a personal murder, Yanni is naming the violence, which is much less spectacularized and individualized, which has been done to her by, I guess, family expectations, by economic constraints, by the flow of resources, which occurs under colonialism or imperialism. And so the act of revenge you know, it's an act of pointing the bloody finger, you know, basically. It's an act of truth-telling to a certain extent. And I think that revenge can have that, can have that function in real life, that spectacular act. Um, you know, there's this quote, to the destruction of their enemies, I dedicate my life, you know, from, from George Jackson and from 
the dedication in one of his very brilliant books, Blood in My Eye, I believe. And yeah, that speaks to me. <laughs> and in some ways, you know, like it, it doesn't even, it, it, I think it can be, and it is in fact functional to seek revenge against one's enemies and to name the perpetrators of violence. But I think that it has a value which transcends the strictly functional. On that final act of revenge, though, when it does happen, and we've spoken about this a little bit, but when that final act of revenge happens, it's less of a well-thought-out plan and it's more of a kind of sudden violent confrontation. I want to know about Yanni's internal battle about wanting to actually kill her brother. It's kind of like when people have a fantasy that the thing that they want will be delivered to them without having to face the aspects of themselves which give rise to that desire, which perhaps they don't like very much. So, yeah, Yanni has this fantasy, and because it's a book of which is inherently a fantasy, it's delivered to her that she can get the opportunity to commit the murder she desperately wants to commit without yielding up the idea of herself as a principal person and a person who doesn't, you know, commit acts of sadistic or acts of violence in a in a premeditated way. And in a sense, I think that is a little bit inconsistent. Maybe she should just have she should just have killed him, you know? Maybe, maybe if I get a do over, that's how I'll write it. It felt really authentic to me in terms of the Yanni that I'd grown to to really know and love. It made a lot of sense to me that she'd grapple with it. As you, I think that's really great that you point that out, that she is someone who is quite a principled person. She doesn't move according to uninhibited desire. She feels desire very much, but when you look at especially her early life, looking after her parents, she does not necessarily act upon it and she is never quite able to free herself from this kind of instinctive moral compunction. And so I guess that's my gift as the as the author to, to Yanni, the character, that she can get what she wants, at least in this instance. The constraints is something that we we feel straight away as we're looking at Yanni's life. But other characters and other people around her kind of manage those constraints within what they have, right? So they they get married and they find a way to kind of make their lives work. Um, Yanni, by virtue of not kind of capitulating to those normative ideas, she opens up our opportunity to see that world through a different lens. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I guess Yanni is someone, you know, because she does not, as you say, capitulate, that's a really beautiful way of putting it. I mean, there's different ways of looking at it, right? That like that act of capitulation is in a way an act of being oriented towards life. You know, people are making the best of it. So Yanni's on-off-again, off-again lover, Shu Ying, is someone who in many ways denies herself the opportunity of authenticity in terms of pursuing the sexual and romantic desire that she feels. But in a sense, she is living an authentic life in that, you know, the thing which is important to her is access to the kind of comfort and resources and sort of belonging, you know, in the world, which, you know, you get when you do the things which you're supposed to do. In her case, you know, marrying, having children and performing a particular kind of role. I think that often the sorts of constraints that we face can be hidden by the accommodations which we make for the purposes of survival. You know, you do things because, in a sense, you had to, but over time you justify those choices to yourself. You know, you don't want to keep reminding yourself of the things that you missed out on and so you kind of 
convince yourself that what you have is what you wanted. And it's Yanni's refusal to tell these little lies to herself and to other people, which makes the constraints very visible. So the whole time we've known Yanni, she has had this simmering rage and resentment. What does that rage look like at the end of the book? Yeah, at the end of the book, the tenor of that rage has changed. You know, it hasn't ceased to exist, but um, having enacted that spectacular violence against the sort of symbolic avatar of all that oppresses her, it's become a sort of a sort of psychological companion to her, which is almost. I mean, I'm actually thinking of that that Philip Pullman novel, you know, the the his dark materials and how people have a sort of spirit animal which accompanies them. And yeah, it, it, it's become in some ways a comfort to her, I would say. You know, you write earlier that love is just a habit and maybe rage is just a habit as well. And there's actually something else I just thought of, which is Yanni at the beginning and at the end, she does not acquiesce. And that refusal to acquiesce can take a violent and quite an agitated form or it can take the form of a constant and constantly tendered refusal. Do you think that ultimately she ends up happy with the choices that she made? You know, I think that pretty clearly she doesn't. As you've mentioned at the end of her life, she still leads quite a boring life where her interior life is oriented towards yearning and oriented towards essentially, you know, fantasy and and, and yearning and being oriented more towards that which does not exist in her life rather than that which does. But it isn't obvious that she would have been happier if she had made, you know, if if, if she had abandoned her parents. We can see that this is a character who has a very vivid memory of past love and past desire, and I don't think that she would have forgotten that if she had lived that heterosexual life and accessed wealth on that basis. I don't think that she would have forgotten the authenticity which she had renounced. So basically, I don't know if there was an avenue for Yanni in which she would have been happy and fulfilled. And yet she does experience a level of authenticity, which to me is perhaps more, you know, more admirable than that. I love that. Uh, Thank you so much, SL, for taking the time to have this really in-depth and engaging conversation about the very complex characters that you created in Revenge. Thank you so much. I really appreciate how carefully you've read and how carefully you've, you've thought about this. If mentions of domestic violence and threatening behaviour have raised any issues, please speak to someone. You can call the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service on one 800 737 732. That's 1-800-RESPECT. Their website is 1-800-RESPECT.org.au and they're available 24 hours a day. You can also call the Men's Referral Service on 1-300-766-491 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Chat via their website at lifeline.org.au. SL Lim is the author of Revenge, Murder in Three Parts published by Transit Lounge. If you liked this episode, I think you'd also like my co-host Lucy Clark's conversation with Heidi Everett, whose book My Friend Fox is another captivating dissection of identity and trauma. And next week, you'll hear Siang Lu in conversation with Jane Lee. Together they open up about how movies change the way they think about themselves. 
This episode was produced by Alison Chan, mixed by Daniel Simo. The series producer is Jane Lee, and Molly Glassy is the executive producer. I'm Zoya Patel. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app and tell your friends about us. It really helps us to find more listeners. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading.